Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post. Coming to you today from Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm attending Cavs-Celtics, the opening game of the 2017-18 NBA season, and the return of Kyrie Irving to Cleveland. Should be a fascinating night. And because of that, I've made the Central Division preview the final one of the six preview pods that we're going to unveil for this season. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening to all of them. But uh, with this one, we've got Vinny Goodwill from NBC Sports Chicago. We've got Joe Varden from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. We've got Rod Beard from the Detroit News. We've got Nate Duncan from the Dunkdown Pod chipping in on the Indiana Pacers. And we've got Matt Velasquez, the new beat writer for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and the Milwaukee Bucks. Should be a fun listen. I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, thanks again for sticking through all these previews. But now that we're here on opening night, uh, let me get you to my conversation to start with, with Vinny Goodwill. All right, Vinny, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Um, you know, not it's probably not the, the most exciting bull season upcoming for, for fans, especially in recent years after the, the Tibbs era. Not a, not a lot of expectations, I think, for, for this Bulls team. But I, it should still, I think, be an interesting season, if not for reasons that fans are, are maybe excited about. I mean, it's going to be an interesting season if you're paying attention to the college ranks. <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying to see uh, who's going to be a top five pick or top three pick, or if you're really being realistic about the Bulls here, you want that number one pick because this is a roster that is worthy of earning the number one pick uh, <laughs> next next June. Like they, the cupboard is bare, and it's funny how uh, trading one player away, literally they traded one guy away, and now the cupboard is completely bare. That just lets you know. Uh, not necessarily how great of a job the front office has done as far as accumulating talent over the past few years and trying to turn this roster over. And a lot of questions have to be answered about some of the guys that they feel like uh, they've invested in. Well, and that, that, that sets us up nicely for what we're going to talk about here. Let, let's start with the front office. Um, go a little different order than I was going to. Doug Collins got hired. We're, we're recording this uh, before training camp opened. So the Bulls, Bulls unveiled Doug Collins as an advisor of the front office yesterday. Um, Doug has a long track record uh, with the Bulls, knows John Paxson, the, the president of the team, very well. Uh, was a player there, was a coach there. Um, uh, you know, has been you know, in the mix for a long time. Um, what do you, uh, what do you make of that hire? And did, and did you, did you make anything like I did that there were only two people who spoke at that press conference yesterday? Yeah, I, I will say this. It, it signaled to me, you know, one thing specifically that this rebuild is going to take a lot. And for them, it's more so an admission that, Hey, maybe we don't have everything that we need right here in this house that maybe put it like this, presumably. And Doug Collins said, tried to tell everybody who was listening, I'm 66 years old. I'm not this fiery guy anymore. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and do crossword puzzles for three hours and sit still. <laughs> they don't need that Doug Collins. Like, you've been around Jerry West out there, yep. in, you know, in, in the Bay Area. He's 75. Right. Like, or 79, rather. Right. He would look at Doug Collins as a spring chicken. And right. you know, like I know, that Jerry West is one of the most intense individuals you will ever come across. Oh, Calm sure. down, doesn't really reflect in his personality. You can't say that to him. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And if Doug Collins is coming in the quote-unquote Jerry West advisory role, then he needs to actually bring a level of fervor and a level of intensity that this Bulls franchise desperately needs. Like, he can't 
coach on the floor or anything like that. But sometimes I wonder if things have gotten so comfortable at the front office because people have been there for a long time. You wonder if there's actually healthy debates. You wonder if there's actually a healthy sense of confrontation. And I think in this front office, if this rebuild is going to work in any way, you're going to have to have some healthy confrontation. You're going to have to have some real knockdown, dragout battles, you know, about players you already have on your roster, about players you're hoping to get. Because you can't just build with draft picks. You can't just say, okay, we're going to wait for the next three years and we're going to get the top pick or a top five pick every year. And then that's how we're going to do this. You have to acquire talent through trades, through free agency. You know, you have to know the league. and Maybe Doug Collins coming in through his experience because he's a basketball lifer. Maybe he knows the league a little bit better or a lot better than a lot of the guys they already have in the front office. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought to me, the thing that stood out to me was that only two people talked. One of them was John mm-hmm. Paxson and one of them was Doug Collins. And we're going to get to Fred Hoiberg in a second. But I, it, it does it did make me think that perhaps the future of both Gar, Gar, Gar Foreman and, and Doug and uh, and uh, Fred Hoiberg are connected. I mean, there's no doubt that Gar was the guy who was really pushing to, to bring Fred in. I mean, that, that's a guy he knows for a very long time, has a long relationship with. And, um, you know, it, it would make you wonder that, you know, hey, it, it is kind of interesting that, you know, the GM of the team is is not speaking at a press conference that they, they not only and hire a guy like Doug Collins, like you said, but unveil him in a press conference and, and have a thing where he's talking to the media, even if he was doing everything he could, like you said, to say that, he wasn't coming in there to have a huge role with the team anymore. Yeah, you don't have a you don't have a press conference for a guy who has the stature that Doug Collins has, and you say, well, he's only going to be reporting to me. He's not going to be doing that much. And why present him out here to the public? Right. Why even show him out there? Right. You know, right. and why and why does Doug Collins come aboard and leave the cushy job at ESPN if his voice isn't going to be seriously paid attention to? So. How you dovetail that to Gar Foreman is this. Gar Foreman is, is obviously very close, you know, with, with the Reinsdorf family, more, more so Michael Reinsdorf, the, the team president. John Paxson, of course, is a favorite son of Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, the Bulls' owner, who was eventually, obviously, people know, was going to, you know, pass the team down to Michael, and Michael's starting to take more control and do more of the day-to-day stuff where Jerry's more so involved with the baseball team. This is how I look at it. If there's a pie of trust, right, and you got Garfunkel with a really big chunk and you got John Paxson with a really big chunk, you know, they hold a lot of sway, a lot of juice and uh, how the team's direction is going to be. If you're bringing on a Doug Collins, that pie doesn't get bigger. Right. That pie just gets divided up in a different way. So if you're going if you're going to say that if there's someone whose voice isn't maybe going to hold as much sway, not to say he's going to be a figurehead or anything like that, because I, I do believe that Gar Foreman is valuable to the daily, you know, operation. But when you bring someone like Doug Collins aboard, you don't bring him aboard to lessen his voice. You don't bring him on to dull, you know, his voice. Whether Gar Foreman was out there talking in the public or not, I don't pay that much attention because Gar says a lot and doesn't say anything. That would have inflamed the fans more right. if they would have seen Gar Foreman. John Paxson has a little more sweat equity because of how he played, because when he goes out in the public and he says things, sometimes he can be a little bit on the fiery side and he may have to walk things back. But you feel like you're getting the real John Paxson. You feel like you're getting a genuine, incredible voice, even if you don't necessarily agree with him, even if you feel like he goes over the line, you feel like that you're getting someone authentic. 
Right. No, I agree with that too. I, I, and you know, I, I, and I don't mean that, that they've pushed Gar aside now. I just think, I just thought it was interesting symbolically to not have him yeah. speak at the press conference. I mean, even if he didn't, even if he was only up there and said two words, I mean, the fact that he, it was just a, it was a, it was a John and, and Doug show does, it does lead you to wonder about the direction of things. And that, that kind of dovetails into the questions about, um, the, you know, the questions about Fred Hoiberg, you know, obviously been a rough couple of years for him with the team um, coming into the third year of a five-year deal. Uh, it does ironically seem like he's probably better suited to coach this team than the prior two when they were dominated by veteran uh, players that he, he seemed to have trouble trying to get to bend his way of thinking. Um, so, so what do you, what do you think of that? And, and what do you think of the situation he's in now as this, uh, as this third season of his regime gets underway? I would say be careful what you wish for because, <laughs> you know, all the while, Tim, you know, we've been here where Fred doesn't have the personnel to right. run the offense that he wants, wants to run. And Fred doesn't have the point guard that he wants, that he needs to run. First, it was Derrick Rose because he couldn't shoot and, and Derrick, you know, was dealing with his own issues and, and broke his orbital bone the very first day and 30 minutes into the training camp. So that might have been a sign for Fred Hoiberg that maybe this ain't for me. <laughs> and then you get, and then after that, you get Rajon Rondo and the Rondo experience and everything that comes with that. And he and Fred found a middle ground, uh, a happy medium, you know, toward the end, toward the end of last season when they made their run and nearly, uh, they probably would have upset Boston had Rondo not gotten hurt, you know, but obviously the big elephant in the room was Jimmy Butler and he and Jimmy never really got, uh, on the same page. Jimmy loved confrontation. He loves that type of, even though Jimmy's a passive aggressive type, he loves the confrontation. Fred is not a confrontational coach and every coach is not going to be confrontational. Every coach is not going to be, you know, the fire and brimstone, the Pat Riley, the Tom Thibodeau, you know, you, but you have to be comfortable in your own skin and you have to know your strengths and weaknesses and you have to be able to inspire confidence in your team, despite maybe what your best player does or does not have uh, by the way of, you know, confrontational attributes, you know, so, so whether there's a school of thought of Fred and Jimmy not getting on the same page, doom Fred from the start, whether there's a school of thought of, you know, first impressions, we're going to doom Fred no matter what. And it wasn't just Jimmy. It was going to be the entire team. Derrick Rose and Paul Gasol did not have a very ch- chummy relationship. Jimmy Butler and Joe Kim Noah did not like each other. You know, and that had nothing to do with Fred Hoiberg. That was pre-existing conditions, right. <laughs> to, right. to, borrow, to borrow a phrase. Right. So he didn't walk into the best situation. He didn't adjust to it the best possible way. Now he feels like he can at least show that he can develop players with the low expectations. He feels like Chris Felicio developed under him. He feels like other guys, Justin Holliday's, you know, guys on a, you know, telling the bench who aren't as talented. He feels like those guys have developed under him. Now he gets to see, okay, Bobby Portis, first round draft pick two years ago. You're going to play now. Laurie Markinen showed a lot at, at, at the FIBA games, showed a lot during those games. Now let's see what you can do. Denzel Valentine, another first-round draft pick. Like, Bobby Portis and Denzel Valentine, those are two guys who were highly thought of before their respective drafts, and they have not shown a whole lot during their time in Chicago. Now you have to have a guy, when you, when you bring in Fred, and you say, Fred, here's your roster, and here's low expectations, and we don't have Jimmy Butler around anymore, and we're going to angle for a rebuild and a number number one pick. 
what the only thing he can lay his head on is developing players individually and yeah implementing your system is good and all that other type of stuff but usually you bend your will towards the best players on your team no matter what your system is so the only thing for me that's a mark of success or failure for fred this season isn't necessarily command because i don't think he's that type of coach but you better be able to show some growth and development with the players that you have on your roster because if you can't develop these guys you can't develop the michael porter juniors or the luka donishes and those guys like that you have to be able to develop the the b minus c players before you get to the a a a plus players no it's 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 definitely true and that that's the uh you know like you said if he's gonna if he's gonna build the case for him to stick around after this year is over at the end of the season you'd look around and say hey maybe the bulls didn't win a lot of games but you saw significant improvement from some of these guys we're about to talk about, whether it's Chris Donner, Zach Levine, or Valentine and Portis. I mean, if if they get through this year and they're 22 and 60, but the young guys look like they're actually making strides, then, you know, perhaps you can make an argument for him to stick around. But if things are flailing and it's not looking like anybody's really going anywhere, you know, if the team struggles as it's expected to, I think it'll be tough to make the case that this is something that should continue. Well, yeah, I think you have to look at it almost like this way. Fred was up for a number of jobs when he was at Iowa State, a number of jobs. He would have interviewed next in Golden State, had Steve Kerr turn that job down. He interviewed in Orlando. He was up for the Minnesota job when before everything wound up crashing down with the death of Flip Saunders and everything else that happened with that organization a couple of years ago. Denver, he was up for. So he was highly thought of, Yep. you know, three years ago. And you go from being the hot name you know, and all of a sudden it looks like from some people's perspective, it looks like the Bulls bought a lemon. And maybe in some case, people can look at Fred and say Fred was handed a lemon. Which one was it? Right. Maybe it was both. Right. 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 So so if there if there's year five, we're going into, you know, year four, year three of the Fred Hoiberg experience. And then you got, you know, year four and and presumably there's an there's an option there's an escalator uh on to year five if you're going into a rebuild a long rebuild what what could be a very long rebuild then you have to be able to answer the questions about whether this is the head coach for the long run or whether you have to start over again with another coach but then again coach blaming seems to be du jour around here <laughs> but uh it's hard to argue with that one um, let's, uh, let's move on to some of the stuff about the current team though. Uh, you, you, let's start with Larry Marketing. You mentioned it before, had a really good Euro basket, played very well for Finland, um, helped them get to the, the medal round of the tournament. Um, did, did you, did that tournament and the way he played, uh, change your opinion at all on him? And what do you, what do you expect from him this year in terms of the opportunity he's going to get to play and, and be, be kind of a, a, a main component of what they're trying to do? Well, I won't say it, it changed anything because you, what he did wasn't anything unlike he did at Arizona. If you saw or paid attention to him, it just seemed like he did it with more force. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. he showed the skill set, the the ability to pick and pop, the ability to go baseline, take a couple dribbles, and finish strong at the rim. In college, there's not as much space on the floor, so you can't see those type of things in bulk. You don't know if it's whether it's you know the college game itself. Uh, preventing you from doing that or whether it's something like you know what maybe it's only something we're going to see in bits and spurts and that's not a part of his game I think we saw enough of it in Eurobasket to say that's going to be part of his game now the biggest part of his game is going to be as a guy who's seven feet tall who's going to stretch the floor who's probably coming in maybe as the best shooter on the roster not named Zach Levine already Mm -hmm. so when you have that 
and I think they're going to play him more at five, Tim, than four, you know, because, and, and, and that can present problems in itself because he's still very light. He's going to have to gain weight and everything else, and you're going to have to worry about him rebounding. But if you're going to, if this is developmental year and you're going to throw a kid out there and say, hey, sink or swim, then this is the bet that you've made. And you have Chris Felicio, you have Robin Lopez, who I will, who I expect there to be some feelers around you know relatively early in the season to see what type of value you know he has around the league as far as trade value whether it be a draft pick or a player on an existing contract in a different position you know I expect Laurie to get a, to get a chance to play don't forget you still have Nicola Meritage and you still have Porter so you got five bigs who presumably want to play and the Bulls may have something invested in, at least early on and you're going to have to play marketing you have to play him you can't have your first round draft pick number seven guy center a big part of the Jimmy Butler trade and he not play especially on a team that's projected to win between what 18 and 24 games this season right you got to be able to get him on the floor right no I think you're I think you're 100% right with that and, and let with that let's get to the other two guys in the trade here um you know Chris Dunn real I really liked him a lot coming out of Providence I thought he was gonna have a, a big rookie year um really struggled with the Wolves never really seemed to get his get comfortable all season um, despite, you know, Tibbs for all the talk about him not playing young guys, really giving him a lot of chances to play. Um, but, you know, the Bulls took a, just took a swing on him, got him in this trade. Uh, they've, they've gone through a, a ton of uh, options at point guard over the last couple of years, uh, to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it does seem like that Dunn is going to get the chance to try to run with this job and, and maybe secure it. So what, um, what did you think of them of taking a chance on him and the trade and, and, and how, how legitimate do you think that is that at least to start the season, you know, he's going to get every opportunity to win that job and try to try to make it his own. Let, let, let's, let's start off by saying that I was not a proponent of the trade um, because I don't, I feel like it's very difficult in today's NBA. You have to, once you push that clock back and you say, we're going to rebuild, you have to do everything right. And that means you have to get this trade right. And I don't even feel like they got the trade right. You know, you gave up number the number 16 pick, your own pick. And you said that you had to do that to make this trade happen. I firmly believe that one of two things happened. And this is me going on a slight tangent here. Right. But I firmly believe that one of two things happened. That if you told the Minnesota Timberwolves, hey, we'll trade you. We'll do this trade as it looks like. But we're keeping our pick. The Timberwolves would have done the trade. Right. There's no way that Tom Thibodeau would have held on to a number 16 pick. Right. Right. You know, just off of, off of principle. But right. That further lets me know how anxious the Bulls were to get rid of Jimmy Butler. Yeah. To that, I don't understand. It's so. Yeah. It really. No, I was just gonna say it. Really, I agree with you. I think if it was just the, the Levine Dunn and, and marketing for for Butler, I was ready to defend the trade when I thought that was the trade. Like, not that it. Not that I thought it was the greatest trade of all time, but I thought it was an okay haul to get back for him. Uh, but then when you find out that they also gave up the pick, that's where I was like, all right, that's. That seems like a little a little bit too much uh, to be given up in a trade where you're giving up clearly the best player. What it felt like to me was that, you know, and this happens sometimes. I'm not not like saying it's a good thing. It felt like the Bulls decided, all right, we have to trade Jimmy. Like we've, we've decided that we've got to move on from him. We've got to start over. We've been in this middle ground for too long. And because of that, they, they got themselves in a position where I think they talked themselves into, we have to do this now. And instead of instead of thinking, all right, we can trade Jimmy, but let's make sure that we get the deal that's right for us. And like I said, I thought that trade might not have been the greatest trade. I think it would have been fine. I think it definitely is better trade than what uh, 
a far better trade than what the Pacers got for Paul George, for example. Um, but I, I thought giving up that pick, to your point, was kind of emblematic of them going, all right, we got to make this now. All right, we're not going to let the 16th pick hold up us making this trade, as opposed to saying, all right, let's think about this. Is Tibbs really not going to do this trade over the 16th pick in the draft? I doubt it. You know, and I think, exactly. I think if they, I think if they thought through it that way, they still would have got the trade done, and they'd also have two first round picks on the roster now instead of one. Especially when you're trying to speed up a rebuild and say we're going to go young, why give up uh, asset like in the number in the number sixteen pick that you've been scouting and you probably have a pretty good feel for? Mm-hmm. You probably could have gotten a decent enough player if you trust and believe in your scouting. Mm-hmm. You know, why do that? To me, it just says they were they had a hard on for trading Jimmy, and everybody in the league knew it. So you weren't going to get a great deal. And people have made the Paul George comparison, but here's the thing: Paul George was going to leave at the end of next season. Jimmy Butler had two more years on his contract and wanted to stay. So I don't believe that the Paul George comparison, to me, holds much of any water because there's two totally different situations. And the Bulls have talked, I think the Bulls have talked themselves into, like you said, into saying this is a move we have to do no matter what because we don't want to pay Jimmy $200 million on a designated, designated player extension. But when you're bringing in the money that the Bulls are bringing in year to year, you know, as, as you've seen from the Forbes report or the ESPN report, sure. you know, they're one of the teams raking in money. Sure. You shouldn't have a problem holding on to a guy like Jimmy Butler in trying to build. But let's spin this forward to Chris Dunn. Right. Who was the apple of the Bulls' eye this time last year right. when they were thinking about trading Jimmy Butler right. for, for a first round. Can you imagine, had they traded Jimmy Butler for Chris Dunn in the poo-poo platter from the Minnesota Timberwolves, <laughs> and that's the player that they would have gotten. That's why it's hard to believe confidently that the deal that they made was the right one because the young player you identified last year was a throw-in in the trade that you got for Jimmy Butler this year. And I think, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to make of Chris Dunn last year. Everybody wants to say, "Well, Tibbs doesn't play rookies." It seemed like Chris Dunn got a decent enough opportunity. Yeah, he did. His, his shot looked broken. It looked like the game moved a little too fast, a little too fast for him, and the decision making wasn't there. And it's not like you're talking about an 18 and 19 year old kid who has to grow and mature and develop in that way. Chris Dunn is a, was a full grown, old school NBA rookie that everybody likes to tell us are the best rookies that we have in the league compared to those one and done kids who are never prepared to play in the NBA when clearly the opposite is usually true more often than not. So when you bring in Chris Dunn, what do you expect? I don't know if I expect anything of anointed as okay, the point guard of the future. You you cut out for a second. You you oh. said uh, when you you cut out right when you said what do I uh, what do I expect from Chris Dunn this season? Okay, okay. So what do I expect from Chris Dunn this season? I don't know simply because I look at the list of point guards the Bulls have anointed at, as point guards of the future. Jaron Grant didn't do much. Cameron Payne didn't do much. Now there's him. So who who do you trust? Who do you trust, your line guys, or do you trust the Bulls (laughs) when they say that this guy is our point guard of the future? I don't know. There's an argument that could be made that the Bulls should have taken Dennis Smith Jr., considering point guard is more of a premium position than than stretch five. Dennis Smith Jr. went to pick right after that. So there's your point of debate that the Bulls hate listening to. They hate having to hear about when their decisions are being made. Oh, you guys are already making your decisions about, you know, you already get your narratives painted out about we should have taken this guy, we should have taken that guy. When Dennis Smith Jr. goes right after your pick and he's 
at point guard when you have not been able to get a point guard that you believed in that has shown you anything since the Derrick Rose trade, you're opening yourself up to these line of questions. And if Chris Dunn does not develop the way that they feel like he should, guess what? They're going to be in the market looking for another point guard again. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly possible, you know, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, that's, it's one of the, it's one of the big things to watch this year. I mean, if he can, if he can look more like the player he was supposed to be than the player he was last year, then that, that's a, the things could look a lot different for them. But if he can't, then, you know, like you said, there's still, there's still going to be in the market for a point guard yet again. And it'll, you know, it'll be going on five years of, you know, circular, uh, circular moves at that spot ever since Derek Rose first got hurt in the first place. Um, sure. But speaking right. of guys who were injured, that brings us to the last guy we're going to talk about here, Zach Levine. Um, you know, obviously a uh, really intriguing wing player, really good shooter on top of being a dunker, um, has struggled defensively, obviously tore his ACL last year. Um, where is he at in his recovery process? And, and do you, do you, do you think that there's a chance that he agrees to an extension with the Bulls before the deadline next month? I mean, I think there's always a chance, but I don't think it's necessarily very likely um, with the Bulls and how they, especially how they do things. How do you gauge what Zach Levine's market value is, you know, with, with his injury being as such? Now, to his credit, you know, his, his numbers as far as, you know, his workouts and his rehabs and everything else, you're, you're hearing from people that, you know, he's a freakish athlete and he's living up to that. You know, I don't think it's this is the Derrick Rose thing where Derrick Rose first got hurt and Derrick had so many miles on his body already from playing, you know, in Chicago, playing on on hard streets and everything else that his body was already breaking down by 2011, 2012. I don't think that's the case with Zach Levine. I still think that you have to be very careful about how you project him moving forward. I mean, this is a guy who played through that ACL injury for like five or six minutes, you know, in Detroit when it first happened. Like it just looked like he bumped knees with a guy and he limped around for another five or six minutes. You know, shout out to Tips for keeping him out there and not uh, getting him <laughs> off the floor immediately. But, you know, when you when you look at a guy like that who can shoot the lights out and and he didn't have any plays run from him, he was clearly the third option behind Carl Towns and Andrew Wiggins, you wonder if he's going to thrive being that presumably the number one guy as opposed to just being someone who got it off the backboard or, or got it, you know, got it in the floor of his own offense. Conversely, when you're the number one option, you're the number one option for the defense. And you're not going to get those afterthought looks uh, on the defensive end. So I, I think it's going to be a little a mess of the two. But I do think that when he comes back, I would say, you know, I would say, Tim, maybe around Christmas, somewhere around there. Right. You know, assuming, assuming everything goes well. I would say that that would probably be a realistic uh, time frame, assuming that there's no setbacks in his rehab and everything else. And considering the Bulls' history with these type of injuries, you have to be careful with that. I mean, I'm not taking a shot at them. It's just a statement of fact. Sure. Um, so when you look at an extension and everything else, I'm, I'm not quite sure that they'll feel so compelled uh, to give him an extension until, you know, he steps on the floor. And for him, I don't think that he'll be compelled to sign a, a below market extension as damaged goods when he probably feels like that he can make himself into a max type player yeah no i think i think you're right i mean it it's it's tough to give a guy like that a a a big contract unless he's giving you such a deal that you think it's worth it you know and it's it's unlikely that you know it's not like he's a guy like jabari parker's had two of these he's had one and you've seen plenty of guys come back from one and be fine so you know chances are he he waits and sees but yeah i mean he He's an interesting guy because, you know, a lot of the advanced numbers don't look at him as kindly as, as kind of the raw box score stats do. I've always been a fan of his. He's still a super young guy. And right. uh, with his skill set, I certainly think he's 
a guy that could be a really intriguing piece if uh, if it works out. And, you know, it's on a, on a team where there's not going to be a ton of scoring and there's not a lot of uh, explosive athletes. It's certainly, it's certainly a guy the Bulls will need to, to really work out for him. Yeah, not only that, we go back to what we were talking about first with Fred Hoiberg. You have a guy in Zach who's very young. You know, you spent a year at, you know, a year at UCLA, his first year in the league, he played a little bit of point guard towards the end of his rookie season, started to develop that way. And then everything happens, the upheaval happens, and then he injures himself. So when you talk about player development and getting those advanced numbers to look at him more kindly or look at him more like a complete player, that points the finger directly at the head coach to say, hey, here's this raw piece of clay who's not necessarily so raw. As long as his body is in order, then you have to develop this guy and turn him into that centerpiece is not just, you know, a low level guy that you can turn into a rotation player. This is a, a bona fide NBA starter with star attributes, with a star skill set, with superstar athleticism and playing that position, playing the position that he plays. You're going up against really good players every night. You're going against the Jimmy Butler's. You're going against the DeMar DeRozan's. You're going against, you know, some nights the Paul George's. And if you don't bring it on both ends of the floor, it's going to be real easy to separate the real ball players from the posers. And I'm not saying that Zach Levine is a poser. What I'm simply saying is assuming he's healthy and everything else in the Bulls want to have him marketed as that next guy that they are going to build around. A lot of that is going to be on Zach as far as getting his body in order and everything else and making sure that his recovery goes well and his own personal development and growth. But a lot of this is going to also be on Fred Hoiberg's ability to identify Zach's weaknesses and make him grow upon them. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And it's it's one of many things that despite what their record is almost certain to be, should make the uh should make the bull interesting to watch this year. So um so Vinny You wanna cover for- you wanna cover them and switch places with me I, since they're I, so interesting? I said interesting to watch. Uh, <laughs> I'll be I'll be watching. Uh, but seriously though, man, thank thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. And uh, for you, uh, before you bounce, um, give the people uh, you know some info on where they can follow you on uh, social media, and also uh, um, let me uh, or let let them know if you got anything in the works uh, for the first uh, week or so of camp before uh, as things get underway. First week of camp, I got a lot of vodka uh, set up because this is going to be a miserable long season for us, <laughs> uh, old grizzled sports writers. But um, uh, my Twitter is uh, what's my Twitter handle? It's a uh, V Goodwill V G O O D W I L L. Uh, if you follow Tim, then Tim can be a little Tim can be a little saucy with his followers. But I've got nothing on you though more saucy with yeah, my followers. I, so I got nothing on you. I'm, 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 putting the, I'm putting the warning label on my <laughs> Twitter account, and I'm also putting the warning label on Tim's fraudulent uh, uh, top 50 NBA players list that had Isaiah Thomas listed way too low. That was complete disrespect, Tim Bontemps. I expect the retraction, or I will send all of Detroit after you. you know, I'm, not, I'm not retracting anything. You and your Detroit people can go away. I will. Uh, I will. I will. Uh, I'll be in Detroit for the home opener, though. I know you're there now, and I'll be. Uh, I'll be in Chicago. I think the first weekend of the season for uh, for Bulls uh, for Bulls Spurs. So I will see you. I'll see you early in the year. I'll, I'll make sure all of Detroit will treat you warmly. Tim. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you will. All right, buddy. Appreciate the time, man. Thank you. Take it easy.
All right, thanks, Joe. Appreciate you coming on, man. I'm going to see you uh, tomorrow in Cleveland. I know you're headed to practice, but uh, from the first time we recorded this to now, a lot has happened. Let's start with uh, the most recent thing, the trade of Kay Felder and uh, Iman Shumpert. Or not Iman Shumpert. He just popped up on my Twitter. They wanted to trade Kay, <laughs> Yes, they did. Uh, Kay Felder and Richard Jefferson to Atlanta. Uh, the uh, the road trip and podcast uh, future in danger potentially. Uh, what uh, what what was kind of your take on 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 them moving on from those guys and and both saving money and clearing roster spots to get back under uh, under the limit? Yeah, I mean they had to do it. They they had seventeen guaranteed contracts, at least partially guaranteed, um, and they only have fifteen spots. So they had. They had to do something. Richard has been, uh, you know, uh, he's been a very important piece here for two years, um, but he's 37 years old. He makes, you know, two and a half million. So it's it's cheaper to move him or cut him or do whatever. So you kind of knew that was the case. And then Kay Felder was an interesting case because the Cavs actually invested two and a half million dollars just to just to be able to draft him. And that was only a year ago. And now he's he's already gone. Um, I think they would have preferred not to do this, but they couldn't give him a two-way contract because his uh, he was making more guaranteed money this year um, than you're allowed. And they tried to get the league to give them an exception because he was drafted and signed before this this two-way rule went into effect, right? Uh, to no avail. So. You know, um, I mean, that's how it goes. Uh, They had to do it. Um, It's probably better to do it this way. You know, the the players that uh, that they also could conceivably trade um, cost so much more money that you really wouldn't want to trade those guys uh, as a way to just trim your roster. I think you'd rather save their contract for the event where you feel like you need an expensive player. And so you trade them that way. And uh, so, you know, do, do all that. And uh, this is, this is who you got, RJ and, and K. Yeah, no, it's, and it's, uh, it, it's definitely a, a pretty expansive breakdown of the way, way it all played out. The K Felder thing is pretty amazing. He went to Oakland, which is, uh, is that where Dan Gilbert is from? Is that, what's the, what's the connection there exactly? Yeah. I mean, you know, Dan lives in suburban, Detroit, basically, um, you know, obviously in the in the kind of the, the cushier suburbs up there, <laughs> right? And that and that is uh, Oakland is north of the city, uh, on your way to to um, to, to uh, Auburn Hills, and 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 yeah, Kay was right there. Um, now, this was almost universally seen as a Dan move uh, to to get Kay, but it, we should at least mention that. That the Cavs like chief college scout is Brandon Weems, who is LeBron, one of LeBron's best friends. But he was a coach at at Oakland, like literally was K Felder, one of K Felder's coaches for a few years um, before coming to the Cavs. So there was a connection there. They knew him, um, and they you know spent a ton of money to try to give this kid a chance. Yeah, no, they did, and and obviously, like you said, it hasn't it hasn't broke it hasn't broke the right way for him at least to this point now you uh you know part of the reason that Richard Jefferson is um is available now on the open market is because uh Dwayne Wade decided to come to Cleveland uh like we had expected when we first did this podcast um the one thing we weren't sure about was kind of how the starting lineup was going to break down what how did you 
think of what did you think of the way uh, Ty Lue decided to go with this, having Dwayne Wade and, and Derek Rose in the backcourt with Isaiah Thomas still hurt, and then Jay Crowder, LeBron, and Kevin Love in the front court, putting both J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson on the bench. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to react to this in some ways because we we've never really gotten uh, a a precise explanation for for how this happened. Um, all we know is that when Dwayne showed up here, they were using him as sort of the captain of the second unit. And um, while Ty never said definitively that that that's what Dwayne was going to do here, uh, Dwayne was talking about it. Uh, Ty was telling us that's what he was doing in practice. And other players were saying things like, yeah, like Tristan Thompson was like, yeah, I'm going to be coming off the bench with Dwayne and he's going to be throwing me lobs. It's going to be great. So that was what they thought was going to happen. And then uh, they play a couple preseason games and LeBron's hurt. And, you know, they, they kind of, they, Dwayne's starting, but he's also running a little bit with the second unit. And then they say, yeah, um, Dwayne's going to start and JR's coming off the bench. And JR didn't like that uh, because he's been a starter here for three years and because they told him when Dwayne first showed up that that's not what was going to happen. Um, and, you know, the, the team's kind of getting used to having Dwayne and, and kind of refiguring everything out. So, you know, from a basketball standpoint, we were never really told exactly why this is. What we do know is that they'd rather have Derrick Rose running point on the second unit. So they must not have liked how that looked when Dwayne was doing it. And if that was going to be the case, then you might as well start Dwayne. Um, I think that's got something. I also think playing with LeBron has something to do with it. And it's just, look, he's a 12-time All-Star um, they just didn't feel they had the political capital, if you will, to sign him and then, and then stick him, you know, on the second unit. Yeah. And that's the part that I find weird, uh, the political capital part. I mean, you would, you would just, you would have thought that him coming there, he would have been kind of open to whatever they wanted to do. Um, it, it, it I, I thought it was odd and, it, and it's especially odd from a fit standpoint. You, I mean, I understand why they had. Kevin, Kevin Love in there for Tristan Thompson, given they needed more spacing on the court. But if you have Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose out there with LeBron, I just it just seems very odd that when LeBron's going to have the ball in his hands so often, you're going to have two guys out there that can't really do uh, what JR is so good at in general, which is spotting up for open threes and knocking them down. Yeah. Now, you know what? Uh, I mean, in, in fairness to the entire process, like, you know, JR had a pretty bad year last year and, and really didn't like even kind of come close to playing like himself until the finals until right. about game three of the finals. Then he started to make some threes and shoot more threes. Um, and, and, you know, he was playing defense like that. That was kind of what they wanted him to do. And, um, you know, I, I think Tim overall, like, as we start, as we look at this season and as we look at not only this big game, you know, with the Celtics to start, but maybe what's going to come at the end between the Cavs and the Warriors and whatever. Like, when they left the floor after game five, they knew they needed to change things. Um, they knew they needed to get better. You know, they tried a bunch of different things to do it. Like, they, they tried, like, a, you know, franchise shifting deal, you know, to get Paul George and get rid of Kevin, and that didn't work. So, then Kyrie wanted out, so then they made that same trade that way. Um, and and now they've got guys who did start here for three years and guys who were important like role players off the bench for a couple years who are now either on the bench or out of the rotation or gone. Um, and it's because they got better. So 
The Cavs are going to play a little differently, especially with that first unit. But from top to bottom, they're better. They should be better throughout the game, um, which they were. They totally failed against the Warriors when LeBron didn't play. That actually shouldn't happen now, um, and and that's a small improvement that that could be important come June. And so you know, you look at Jr. sitting, and you look at Tristan sitting, and you know it's disappointing for them. And they certainly have given everything they've had to this franchise. But you know, sometimes being comfortable you know, means that you're kind of stuck in, in, in one spot. And the Cavs knew they needed to take a step. And now they have new players and, and those new players are pretty good. And, you know, it, I think at some point it'll all come together and look really nice. Yeah. And that, and that, that kind of dovetails into the whole situation with Isaiah Thomas. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like from the way they're talking, he's got a chance to come back in January. Um, what what is the latest there in your in your mind on where he's at, and um, do you think it's realistic to think he could be back by you know sometime shortly after the new year? Oh, oh certainly. I mean, now listen, the, we we do have a new general manager in Kobe Altman, so we don't know exactly how he works. Except he's been here. This is his sixth year here, and everybody here uh, since Kobe's been working here in some capacity takes the ultra conservative approach on injuries. And so for the, for them to come out and say, we think we're going to have Isaiah back by January one. I mean, he could be back quicker. And yesterday at practice, when we showed up, you know, Isaiah was, was on the court shooting and they weren't stationary shots. Like he, it's not like he's running, he's not, he's not running the length of the floor or anything, but there was movement. Um, and he was shooting jumpers and his, his shirt was soaked. And so he had obviously just gone through a heck of a workout. And, uh, you know, I, I think he's still he's continuing to make progress. And I don't think you can rule him out at this point for the Christmas Day thing. Well, that would be something um, that and, and when and, and uh, is that is, is going through this whole process? Have they been kind of counting on Isaiah to be? A factor at some point or because of the injuries coming back from and the the seriousness of it or, or is it kind of a uh, a found money situation if he is back and able to be Isaiah Thomas like I guess are they are they expecting him to be the same kind of player he was before or is it well let's just get him back on the court and let's hope he can be uh whatever we can have him be at this point I mean I think it's somewhere in the middle I think it's probably a little closer to Let's get him back and hope he's that guy. Um, but but what's really and we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see in a couple of weeks how we feel about this. But but right now, um, Derrick Rose has looked great, and you know, I, I think you'd probably say he looked the best of anybody they had in the preseason. You know, Dwayne had a nice preseason too, but top to bottom, I think you'd probably say Derrick. And um, it will be fascinating to see if this holds. And Derek really is, uh, you know, has a resurgence here. Um, then, okay, what do they do with this guy that they also signed, who's a two-time All-Star and All-NBA player at the same spot? So I think that's part of it. You know, part of it is, is like there's, there's just no use talking about, well, when Isaiah comes back because right. you don't know exactly. You don't know exactly how he's going to be. Um, but then on top of that, they've got this other guy playing the same spot who's, who's been great. Right. No, no, no question about it. Now you, you mentioned, you, you mentioned how good Rose has been in the preseason. What, uh, you know, he obviously didn't have a huge market this summer, signed a minimum deal with the, uh, with the Cavaliers after playing last year with the Knicks. 
Um, you know, what, what has stood out to you about the way he's played um, in, in this preseason so far? Well, I, I just like, um, I like the way that he moves. Um, he is incredibly quick and has been able to turn the corner on, on you know, pretty much anybody that, that he's, that's been guarding him. Um, and the couple times we've seen him run the point with this second unit, which is what, which kind of ties back into the whole Dwayne Jr. conversation, um, it looks really good. And, you know, the Cavs, this, the second unit looks a lot better than it ever has with Derek out there running the floor and, and Jr. And, and Corver beside him. So the one thing that really bothered me, but this was kind of a top-to-bottom problem, is the one game that LeBron played, um, everything was a mess, and Derek just kind of ran and stood in the corner. <laughs> and, LeBron, and LeBron took the ball to the floor, and we were right. joking and tweeting like, hey, Derek, you know, welcome, you know, you're, this, here you play the unpoint guard. There. Right, <laughs> right. Um, but they need, to, they need to flip that, um, you know, because Derek can be a traditional point guard and can be really good at it, and LeBron can do anything, so he doesn't have to play point guard here. Like, he doesn't have a shoot-first point guard on his team anymore in Kyrie. Like, there's things that Kyrie can do as a shooter and off the ball that Derek can't. And so it made sense in a lot of ways for LeBron to run the show. But they don't have to do that now. And I really hope, whether it's tomorrow night against Celtics, whenever LeBron plays, that they have fixed that and, and they continue to use Derek as a point guard um, when LeBron's out there. Do you, do you really expect LeBron to not be having the ball in his hands all the time, though? Well, I mean, one of the misnomers... <laughs> Is, is that, like, Kyrie felt like he needed it more in his hands. I mean, Kyrie had the highest usage rate on the team last year, higher than LeBron's, and, you know, I think, like, top five or six in the league. And so the, it, it can be done, and it, and it is done. I just, you know, I'm just telling you, it was very striking watching this one game against the Bulls to, to watch Rose, who we had seen just direct the offense very well all preseason, just go jog and stand in the corner and look, like watch while LeBron throws the ball in the second row. Like that just that was no good. <laughs> yeah, it will be uh, it will be fascinating to see uh, how that plays out. And that's part of why, like to me, it, it just made a lot more sense. You know, I know when we first did this podcast, you had kind of intimated that the thing you would like to see them do is kind of have LeBron just be the point guard and have a bunch of shooting around him. And I think I personally think that would have been the the better way to go but if you're not going to do that to right. your point you need to give you need to give Derek Gross the ball cuz if he doesn't have the ball he becomes completely worthless to you right i mean that's yeah like that was at a time when we did this that was before that that was when Ty had had said listen Tristan's still our starting center right a lot has so changed tr- since then yeah and so you're trying to think of like okay if that's true and they brought Derek here to be a backup point guard, then why don't you try this? Like, this makes sense. And then instead they went in a totally different direction. They got all new players everywhere. Okay. <laughs> so one of the new players they have turns out to be really good with the ball in his hand. So let's see if we can make this work. Yeah, no, totally. Now, last thing I want to ask you is, well, I guess two things quick. First, it feels like LeBron James is going to be my pick to win MVP. It feels like the the path for him narrative wise is open uh there aren't any other you know there a lot of these other guys have uh teamed up with other stars on these other squads not that he doesn't have a talented team he does but uh what they say Thomas Hurt and kind of the way the roster set up it feels like 
things have come together to kind of make LeBron the favorite. Are you are you expecting him not to necessarily gun for that award, but do you think that's in his mind that that he he really wants to try to get that fifth MVP and get on the same level as Jordan Bill Russell? Uh, yes, yes, of course, of course, that's on his mind, and he'll never say publicly that it is, but but it it absolutely is. Um, you know, he's just really been out of shape about how the voting has gone the last couple of years. And he's made some very valid points about what we make the word, you know, what the word valuable is supposed to mean and all this other stuff um, that I keep preaching. Um, and and I, pay, I voted him third last year, which I think would have been reasonable. Um, and instead he didn't make the top three. But the thing I keep preaching when it comes to LeBron and the MVP is that we almost never, never, give the MVP to somebody who misses games. We just don't. Like, right. if you go back through and look, like, Bill Walton did it, and I think Iverson did. You essentially uh, got to play about – you got to play at least 70 and usually around 75. No, like, it's more like you got to play at, at, at least 75 and then, you know, in a lot of cases, closer to 80. Oh, interesting. It. I, thought it was even, um, I thought it was even a little bit less than that. That's interesting. No, 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 no. And, and you know, LeBron missed eight games last year. Um, I've written this a couple times, but, of course, like, the exact numbers escape me right. at this moment. But, but, like, if LeBron had been MVP, which he had no chance of doing, uh, given, the, you know, how crappily the Cavs finished and, and, and how good Westbrook was. Right. But... If he had done it somehow, like he would have been one of, I think, probably three players in history or something like that, that, that had missed at least eight games. That's how many he missed. Right. Um, like you just, you just can't. And he's, he's 30, going to be 33 years old. He's already been over 50,000 minutes. They expect to go into June. So the Cavs don't care about resting him every now and then to, to stay fresh. And really he wants to do that too, but he also wants to win MVP. And I'm just, you know, the, the Cavs better win 60 games if he, if, if he wants to be MVP and he's going to miss like six or seven or whatever. Yeah, no, that, that is going to be the interesting thing. I mean, the, the, the way the schedule is set up now should kind of aid him a little bit um, where he, there won't be, not, there's not as many back-to-backs, there's no four and five. So, uh, you know, there'll be less, op- you know, less necessary things for him to just get maintenance days. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think he's going to win it. I, I think it all sets up for him. But you're right. That's a, I, I thought the numbers were a little lower than that. That's interesting that, uh, that, that he has to play that many games to really have a realistic shot at it. So, um, you know, and, and heck, we're, as we're talking now, he's still dealing with this ankle injury. So maybe this is finally the year where uh, the guy who's never had any issues at all with injuries basically starts to have some nagging stuff, you know, make him sit for that reason. Yeah, I mean, it's been a funny thing with this ankle, just just in the in the standpoint of like it, we we were told it was a sprain. We've watched him work out on the court, um, but but you know, then he gets out there for this one game finally after a full week off, and in the first quarter he tweaks it again, and you know now we don't know. So you know, it's just I think it was a, I think it was a pretty severe sprain more than anything. Yeah, it sure, sure seems like it for LeBron to have any issues for this long. It's, it's got to be pretty serious. Now, the last thing I want to ask you is uh, it feels to me like we're kind of sucking Groundhog's Day where I don't really see the Cavs having a serious challenger in the East. Even Boston, I think, despite the moves they made this summer, I think is still pretty significantly behind them, You know, assuming everybody's relatively healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still are pretty far away from the Warriors. Uh, from your from your vantage point, are you kind of entering the season thinking the same thing that the 
overwhelming likelihood is that the, the kind, this kind of plays out in the same manner that last year did with a few new pieces around? Well, I, I think we've, I think the Warriors have put themselves in position to where you probably shouldn't pick against them until they show you a reason to otherwise, almost like the way it used to be with the Yankees. Um, right. You know, yeah, uh, almost 20 years ago, but, but yeah, like where they were so good and so automatic that it's like, listen, until they show you why they, you should pick against them, you probably just shouldn't. And right. Like the Warriors are ridiculous. And then they went out and got a tiny bit better with, with Bell and with, uh, with, with Young or I think. And, and so they're, that's great. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. It, it's hard to say that, that the Cavs have gone from pretty, pretty significantly behind them to have having caught them. Um, I, I just will say, I think this these improvements the Cavs made on the bench, if they're still there in June, uh, is 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 going to be is going to matter, and and it could take a five game series and turn it into a six game series. Like it could that it could make that big of a difference, and. So now, you know, you're looking for shortcuts. You're looking for Durant to roll an ankle or you're looking for, you know, maybe a, a roster changing trade on the Cavs that you're not sure about yet. Like, so I think the Cavs are, are realistically where they could have hoped and expected to be at this point, which is better than they were last year in good position to play the Warriors again. And all you need is that chance. Like that's that's pretty much what you can hope for. Right, exactly. No, and that and that's kind of where I'm at too. Like I, I think they're they're gonna get there, and then you know, like you said, it they, the Warriors do have a pretty significant advantage, but that goes away if you know Zaza Pachulia hits Kevin Durant an inch higher than he did last year on his leg. He breaks his leg, and he's out for the season, and if something like that happens, or some you know other equally yeah. crazy beast of luck, then all of a sudden things look a lot different. Right, exactly. That, that's exactly it, and and so. You know, I think it'll be a fun regular season, um, and I even think it'll be that way in the East, um, just because of Cavs and Warriors and or Cavs and Celtics. And then I think the Wizards are going to be a good regular season team, um, and I think it's going to be fascinating for Cleveland to watch what goes on in Brooklyn um, because yes, that's got, right. I forgot they have the pick. Yeah, yeah, like they have the pick, but I, you know, there's some pretty bad teams in the East, and I'm not sure that Brooklyn is really that bad. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch that. So um, then in the West with all this firepower. So, you know, it's like, we, we kind of know how the story is going to end, but, but up until that, the story itself is going to be pretty good. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. So thanks. Thanks a lot for doing this, Joe. I appreciate it. I'll see you uh, tomorrow, but um, let the people know where they can find you on social media and, and what, if anything you want to plug for uh what I'm sure will be a, a very content busy day tomorrow with Kyrie coming back to, uh, to Cleveland. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, follow me on, uh, just at Joe Varden, my first name and last name, uh, V A R D O N. And then, uh, we all, we've got a, a good crew here at cleveland.com. Um, Chris Fedor and I, and our columnists, um, we've got a bunch of stuff, too many things to say, uh, on our own, um, just go to cleveland.com slash calves and check it all out. We've just been posting like crazy and, uh, we'll be doing that right up through, uh, the opener. Yeah, no, I'm sure sure you will. It's going to be a, going to be a crazy night. So thank, thanks again for doing this, man. And I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, man. See ya. All 
right, Rod, appreciate you coming on, man, in between some, uh, some you know, off-season lines duty a few days before camp starts. I appreciate uh, appreciate you fitting it in. Um, no, not a pleasure at all. Not, <laughs> not, a, not an issue at all. <laughs> Most people deal with me is not a pleasure at all, so I, I understand that. Um, the, it, there wasn't a lot of pleasure going out with the Pistons last year either. Bit of a rough season for them. Uh, franchise that I certainly thought and a lot of other people thought was going to take a, a, a pretty significant step forward after a promising uh, year two years ago and everything basically went wrong. Team misses the playoffs, a uh, lot of struggles for the franchise up and down. And, and I think a lot of that began and ended with Reggie Jackson, who, you know, got hurt early, uh, had a meniscus injury, I think, in his knee. Um, didn't yep. come back until December, never seemed to get right. There were issues in the locker room. Uh, just one thing after another, um, and this was a guy that the, the organization had traded for, had committed a five-year, $80 million contract to, um, and had had a pretty good first season in Detroit, had been a borderline all-star. Um, so, you know, where do you think, what do you think he has to do to get back to where he was two years ago? And do you think he's still capable of doing that? I think he is. I think the biggest key is going to be if he gets that burst back that he had in 2016. And that was a near all-star year. He had a really, really good first half of the season in 2016. Uh, the difference last year in the games that he played is that he just couldn't get any separation. And, and if you can compare it to football, it's like a wide receiver who can't get any separation. You're going to have to be taller. You're going to have to figure out something else to be able to get an advantage over a defender. And the one quote Reggie said last year was that it felt like he would be by somebody, but the defender would, would still be there. And so if, if you're relying on that explosiveness and that ability to create space, especially in the pick and roll, you have to be a danger to score the ball. And Reggie just wasn't the same player last year. So I think the biggest key is going to be him regaining that explosiveness, that ability to, to create and be a danger offensively that teams have to defend against. They just kind of sloughed off him a little bit and the, the players who were mediocre defenders were able to stay with them. And I think that was the difference is that he wasn't as effective in the pick and roll because of that. Yeah, it really was crazy to see him go from where he was two years ago to where he was last year. I mean, not that he's, you know, Steph Curry, but he had a really nice year two years ago and looked like, you know, he was going to be the foundation of, of what Stan McGunny wanted to do in Detroit. And just then everything went to hell last year. And there, you know, I, there was times he was shopped around and nobody was really interested. And um, it, it, he, he, I think, is going to be one of the more interesting players in the league this year to see if he can get that back. Because it does really feel like, you know, he and the, the next guy we'll talk about, Andre Drummond, are kind of the keys to everything Detroit, whether they get back on the path they were or they maybe have to look at really blowing this thing up and doing something totally different. Yeah, I think they're absolutely linked together. And when Reggie Jackson signed that long-term deal, Stan Van Gundy really did put the, the future of this franchise in Reggie's hands and in that same apple cart that if Reggie didn't succeed, this franchise wasn't going to succeed. And even with that, that injury that he's got with the tendonitis, it's sort of, you just don't know how it's going to be. It's not like an ACL where you know what the prospects are. He may come back a little bit less than he was. With the tendonitis, he could come back and be 100% and just be exactly like he was in 2016. It's just really hard to tell. And then with Drummond, again, you're predicating your whole offense on the pick and roll. And when you don't have that, then you get what the Pistons had last year. It was just an offense that was all over the place that did a lot of isolation with Marcus Morris, did a lot of things with Tobias Harris. 
you, you just didn't know what their identity was offensively, and that's why they suffered in the record. Yeah, no, and, and Drummond was really fascinating to me. Here's a guy, started the All-Star game two years ago, didn't make the All-Star game last year, was kind of listless. He led the league in rebounding, I think, again. I mean, he's obviously just a massive human being if you're ever near him, but um, but really did struggle. And obviously, you know, Reggie, you know, struggling to pick and roll was definitely part of that, but I wouldn't say it was all of it either. Um, I, I guess kind of along the same lines, do you – do you think he has the potential to bounce back? And, and what do you think he needs to do, you know, besides obviously getting better chemistry in the pick and roll with Reggie for, for that to happen? Well, I think he's best as a pick and roll player. And the, the interesting thing was uh, he took a lot more shots close to the rim um, or, or closer to the rim. He took fewer shots, but he shot a higher percentage on them. But the, the shots that were 10 feet and beyond, he shot a much worse percentage on and he shot more of those shots because he didn't have that pick and roll uh opportunity close to the rim with reggie jackson ishmith isn't the same type of pick and roll runner and so you you've got to have him in his bread and butter and in his his strength area and that is running that with jackson uh, for for drummond it really is just figuring out what a good is and he struggled with that a little bit last year uh in terms of hey here's a, a hook out that i have good soft touch on but it's a it's three or four feet beyond where my hot zone is. So I, I shouldn't shoot the shot. I should kick it back out and repost and get a better opportunity going toward the rim instead of going away from the rim. Those little nuances are the things that he's six years in the league. He should know those things. But now you're looking at he's got to just find that fine line between how much of pick and roll he can run. How what's the, the, the sweet spot in finding that uh, distance that he can shoot that shot and be very accurate with it. Yeah, I mean, it's that's you know, I think that's a really nice summation. Like you, you think about Andre Drummond, right? He's, su- he's such a big guy. You don't want him shooting ten to fifteen feet from the basket. And I, I think those, like, I didn't even realize those numbers were quite that stark. I think you know, laying it out that way, like, ideally, you want him being like what DeAndre Jordan is for the for the um, for the Clippers, right? Like rolling to the rim and catching a lob and dunking it on somebody. I mean, that's. With a guy Andre's size, that's what you want him doing, not jacking up jump shots. And I, I, I think you're right. I think that if there's any one stat that might define what the Pistons look like this year, it'll be, um, you know, how if that percentage of shots outside of 10 feet for him goes back down to where it is a couple of years ago. Because if that happens, his numbers will probably look a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just the shot selection. And if you give him the ball in the in the paint, he's got to figure out, he's got to discern what's a good shot and what's a bad shot. And too often he just turned and took whatever shot was available because, again, he, he wasn't running as much pick and roll. And when you're a franchise player in that mold, you feel like you need a certain number of shots. You deserve a certain number of shots. And maybe he was just a little bit too thirsty in trying to find out where that shot was going to be for him. Yeah, no, I think I think you're definitely right. Um, and and just, speaking of guys who are thirsty, I. Uh, Stanley Johnson is a guy, ever since he came into the league, I've rooted for him to be a superstar player because he, he's just got a chance. He's an all-interview team guy, uh, and if he, if he becomes a really good player, it's good for everybody in our business because as people saw when he was a rookie and was saying stuff about LeBron during that playoff series, he has no problem uh, with self-confidence ever, and, uh, <laughs> as I'm sure you know from covering him. And he, I, it feels like he is going to have every opportunity – to be the team starting small forward after they made the moves they made this summer, you know, bringing in Avery Bradley for Marcus Morris and letting letting uh, KCP walk. Um, do, do you think that's a position he can secure in training camp? And if so, you know, how much do the Pistons need him to really break out and live up to that eighth overall pick he was a couple of years ago? 
Well, I think he's going to have all the opportunity in the world. And, and his 86 points in the <laughs> the summer pro-am, I think it was the Ovo Bounce Tournament, um, notwithstanding, I, I think he's going to have the opportunity to, to shoot as much as he needs to. But to, again, to figure out where that best shot selection is going to be and what that mix is going to be for him. In his rookie year, it was very much going to the rim like a bull in the china shop. And last year, they tried to finesse that a little bit more by giving him a pull-up jumper and using him in different ways. But the problem with him was he was used as the backup shooting guard behind Contavious Caldwell-Pope because that's where the only minutes were. They didn't have any minutes at the three for him. So now he he seems to be, and it looks to be, that he's locked into that starting three role, uh, and he's going to have the minutes and the opportunity and everything else. And if he doesn't do it this year, it probably would be his own fault, not anything that Stan Van Gundy is holding him back or he's in Stan's doghouse or anything like that. They've cleared away the minutes for him and essentially um, gave him that starting spot. I mean, unless they're going to start Tobias Harris at the three and John Lure at the four, that's the only way that Stanley wouldn't get those significant minutes at that small forward spot. Well, and you think too, Rod, if they do that, that means that he was horrible in training camp, right? Like, I mean, I think it's I think it's safe to say that in a in a perfect world for them, he becomes our starting small forward and looks like a core piece for them. Because when you draft a guy eighth overall like they drafted with him. That's certainly what you expect and not, you don't think he's going to, you know, become a, a bit player that, that comes off the bench, you know, in his third season, by then you're expecting him to step up and be a starter and really help you. Yeah. And he's got all the tools, the physical tools and everything else. It's just components to his game in, in high school. And in, in this one year of college at Arizona, he was always bigger and more athletic than everybody else. So he could score any kind of way he wanted to. Now in the NBA, he's got to figure out ways to, again, to create that space, to get his shot off and find a pet shot. You're not going to just be able to muscle past LeBron James or muscle past some of the bigger threes in the league, uh, which is, is, is what he'll be guarding now. But again, defensively, he can guard threes, he can guard twos, he can guard force he can do just about whatever you want to uh but the opportunity just wasn't there he was out of shape a little bit last year and now i think he's got his mentality and his his thought process right and at the age of 20 which is where a lot of guys start to come around or 21 now he's starting to, to really put his game together and from the summer and everything that we've seen it looks like he's going to be ready to take on that role as a starter yeah and like i said I, i'm certainly rooting for it because uh i i, I mean when he I remember when he was a rookie at, at Summer League a couple of years ago, uh, he was college teammates with Rondé Hollis Jefferson, and I remember asking him about Rondé, and he, he said that, uh, well, Rondé got to go up against the best player in the country every day, so I knew he'd be ready to play in the league when he, uh, <laughs> he got to the league, and that, that kind of encapsulates Stanley's confidence level That's himself. Stanley. Yes, it is. That's if Stanley. He, if, if he becomes a star, like I said, it's, it's good for everybody in our business, so I'm... I'm certainly rooting for him from that standpoint. Uh, the, really, the move that defined this summer for Detroit uh, was not bringing back Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who was a restricted free agent shooting guard, and and in doing so, trading Marcus Morris for Avery Bradley. Um, you know, swap mate that swap at the shooting guard spot it was one of the more divisive moves of the summer, I think, in the eyes of a lot of basketball people. Um, that the the Pistons didn't maximize their you know, their ability to bring their restricted free agent back and, and went and got Bradley, who's got one year on his deal. Um, what was kind of your take on that, on that transaction, kind of those, the transaction as a whole, everything together? And where do you think, how do you think that sets the Pistons up both for now and for the future? Well, I think they, they kicked the can down the road a little bit on the salary numbers because they probably would have had to give KCP somewhere near a max, which would have been in the 22, 24 range probably. Mm-hmm. And, 
he hadn't proven that he was that max type of player. If you've got those same types of questions about Andre Drummond and whether he deserves the max, you don't want to have another player on the roster who's getting those same questions. Avery Bradley, they took on in the last year of his contract, and he'll be an unrestricted free agent next year with the risk that maybe he will be a max type player. And everything that Avery Bradley is currently is the same stuff that they want KCP to be, and they would envision that he could aspire to. So if, if you have the opportunity and you make this a, a good uh, place for Avery Bradley, he's comfortable, he has a leadership role, he has his share of the, the shots and everything else in the offense and he plays good defense that's the type of player that you'd feel much more comfortable building your franchise around giving him max money and saying this is the face of our franchise now along with Andre Drummond I just don't get the sense that they ever felt comfortable that KCP was going to be that guy he was more of a quiet guy a reserved guy uh, who played defense and, and came in and punched the clock every day but he's not a guy that you can market around the same way that you can uh, an Andre Drummond or, or potentially an Avery Bradley and if he just hadn't reached what his height is going to be you can't justify by giving him a max contract, and that's what they would have had to, to, to have done this summer. Now they can at least take a, a gaze at Bradley, see if he is that type of player. And again, they, they take the risk of Bradley being an unrestricted free agent, and maybe he just decides he wants to go someplace completely different that's a, a team that's a little bit closer to contending and being in the playoffs every year. But again, this is a good setup if things go right for Stan Van Gundy that he can show Bradley that this is a place where he belongs. Well, and I, I think, I mean, there's no question you're right about that. I mean, it is some reporting on the KCP thing over the summer, and, and there's no doubt that the Pistons were hesitant about committing that kind of money to him because they were going to have to give him a max or close to it, like you said. And the other thing, too, is he's another guy who's a casualty of the way last season went, right? I mean, if the yep. Pistons had taken another step forward and it looked like this team was on the up, then you go, all right, let's keep this crew together, right? But when they, when they take a step back, then, like you said, do you go, all right, well, do we want to commit another – huge contract to a team that went from being a mid 40 win team looked like it was going towards being a close to 50 win team to one that went back under 40 again. And I, I think if, if they had had the year they were expected to last year, I don't think they would have had any problem keeping KCP. The problem was that when they didn't do that, they kind of reassessed things and said, all right, well, if we're going to do this, um, does this guy make sense to do it with? And, and like you said, I think they pretty clearly decided that no, it wasn't. Yeah, and that's I think that's what this team needs is leadership and identity. And they had a a, a couple of bumps in the road last year. And uh, the, the two players that Stan Van Gundy went to to try to stabilize things, Marcus Morris and KCP, both guys that went away in that transaction to bring in Avery Bradley. I think the logical next step is to look at Bradley as one of your leaders that um, not only is a leader in the locker room and on the court, but a guy that you also um, look to as the face of your franchise and the leader of your defense. No, that's that's definitely true. And and KCP's always been a guy that's been more um, potential than production too. Like people, like he's got a beautiful looking jump shot, and people look at him and think he's you know a forty percent three point shooter. He's never shot better than thirty five percent from three. Um, yeah, and so that's like, the problem. Yeah, so like that, he he's a guy that I have a lot of. I think he could be a really good player, but so far he hasn't proven he's been better than say an average starter, which is roughly what the Pistons offered him, average starter money, and he wanted a max, and so that was there's. You know, that was just there was just an impasse there. So um, I, I think that'll be really curious to see how that plays out. And you're right. Obviously, they take a risk with 
Um, they take a risk with him potentially leaving, but the, you know, you, you said it well. They they didn't they didn't see KCP as a guy that they really wanted to invest in, and so they they made sure they didn't have to. Yeah, and that's uh, for the most part, Stan Van Gundy has done everything right in terms of trades and uh, maneuverings with this roster. This is one that's really going to define things because again, if Avery Bradley leaves. Um, it probably means that the Pistons didn't make the playoffs. They didn't have a very good year. And the, the, as a, an organization, they're probably in reset mode and, and really just starting over. And it could be with the front office, uh, Stan wearing both hats as the, the team president and the coach. They could blow this entire thing up if this team doesn't make the playoffs and they underachieve again this year. Well, and that kind of gets to the last thing I wanted to uh, ask you as a nice segue. What, what do you see as the um – as the focal point here for this front office in terms of how hot the seat is. I mean, you know, Stan, you know, as you mentioned, has full autonomy. Um, he's got Jeff Bowers as GM, but he's the president of basketball operations. He's overhauled the whole front office. He's brought in all kinds of new scouting stuff. Um, it's his organization up and down. But, you know, like you said, this is a pretty big, um, this is a pretty big off season uh, for or a pretty big season coming up for him year four. Uh, with this with this group in place and you know how, if let's say this season doesn't go well and they struggle um what do you do you think that means anything for for him or or how, where do you think it leaves this this franchise if they do you know struggle to get back to where they were or beyond from two years ago yeah i, I think it, it puts them we won't call it the hot seat maybe it's the lukewarm seat hmm. uh, especially if they struggle out of the gates and and they they have a, a tough first part of their schedule they start out with a west coast trip i think in the second week of the regular season so they they're going to have to get out to a good start and start showing some signs that this is at least a good team that people should pay good money to go and see. Of course, they're moving into a, a new arena in downtown Detroit, so there's going to be some goodwill that's all almost automatically fostered with that. But a lot of the diehard fans and, and the ownership is really focused on this this ship needs to be turning around a little bit more. We were so encouraged by 2016 uh, with Stanley Johnson, with Reggie Jackson, with Andre Drummond in the all-star appearance, and all of that stuff just kind of went south. You can, from Stan's perspective, you can blame a lot of that on that Reggie Jackson injury and say that dictates a lot of what our fortunes are going to be. But if he comes back uh, and he's healthy and they still don't do very well or he comes back and he's not healthy, again, all of that stuff is on Stan's head that he's got to figure out and be accountable um, for how he's going to explain that to ownership that they're – I think they were the third or fourth highest payroll last year, and they didn't have the results to go along with it. And that just doesn't go very far, no matter how far your um, franchise is valued. When you're an owner and you're dumping a lot of money into this thing, and the, the report coming out the other day that they lost um, 60 plus million last year, you've got to have some results on the court and some fan reaction that that goes along with that. And they seem to have neither right now. So this is an important year in terms of turning around those perceptions and getting some results in the win-loss column too. Well, and one more bonus question, quick, kind of along those lines. What do you what do you think the the move to the downtown arena, I don't think it's Little Caesars Arena, um, moving from the Palace into downtown Detroit, what do you think that can do for the franchise? You mentioned they obviously lost a ton of money last year. Um, they weren't exactly filling the palace, as as I think we both know from going to games there. Um, what do you what do you think that move can do for them? I think it'll help at least from a game atmosphere standpoint that they'll sell out. I mean, the, the, for the majority of the games where last year it might have been three quarters full or, or so. And it just wasn't a raucous atmosphere. And uh, it hasn't been that way for a few years now. I think just with the newness of the new arena and it being in downtown Detroit and that synergy that's there with people are 
that are moving back downtown and working downtown, there'll be a lot of energy in the building. But again, a lot of that is predicated on a good product on the court and a team that's winning. When you get to the dog days in uh, March and April, that kind of wears thin a little bit. You're not going to get that same enthusiasm with when you have a team that's a few games under 500 and struggling to even make the playoffs in the East, which should be a foregone conclusion with the level of talent that this team has. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. And I'll be at the home opener. I'm looking forward to uh, to checking it out. I'm, I'm going to Cavs Celtics, then I'm making the, the drive to Detroit for that game. So against the Hornets on uh, the Wednesday to start the season. So it'll be interesting to see what that new arena looks like. Um, Absolutely. Thanks, looking forward to it. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for doing this, Rod. Before you go, though, uh, give the people uh, you know some info on, on where they can follow you on on Twitter and if anything you've got interesting coming up here as the season gets underway. No, it's just at Debt News Rod Beard, D-E-T News Rod Beard. And just looking forward to Media Day on Monday um, where, again, we'll get to meet some of the new players, get a longer conversation with Avery Bradley, and kind of get a feel for where Reggie Jackson is in uh, his recovery. He they kind of had him on a program for the summer, and now he's starting to ramp up those efforts and being ready to start uh, competing when the preseason starts on the 4th. Yeah, it should be, it should be a fun season. So th- thanks again for the time, man. I appreciate it, and good luck with things. Hey, anytime, Tim. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning more about the NBA, you can get my weekly NBA newsletter, the Monday Morning Post-Up, delivered right to your inbox every Monday morning at 8 a.m. To do so, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter to subscribe. You'll get an original column from me, links to my work from the past week, links to work from both my colleagues at the Washington Post and other writers from around the web about the league, a viewing guide for the week ahead, and some dining and pop culture recommendations. Again, to subscribe to the Monday Morning Post-Up, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter and start your week off right with everything you need to know about the NBA. All right, Nate, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, you obviously follow the league as well as anybody, so I figured you could pinch it here on the Pacers. And I was just curious, um, you know, to me, in the wake of Paul George leaving, and especially with the, the Pacers getting, I think we would both agree, with less than an optimal return for him, um, do you see Miles Turner as a guy can be um, that can be a, a foundational, uh, foundational guy um, for the for the paces, or, is, or are you still not sure if he has quite that kind of upside? I've always felt that he doesn't, and I liked him a lot in the draft. To have a guy who can block shots, I think, is a pure shot blocker. He's one of the best in the league. Maybe he's still working on some of the nuances and pick and roll and help defense, but if he's around, he's one of the best guys in the league at, at blocking shots, and his jump shot is pretty solid. He's a, a good pick-and-pop player, but I don't think that He's quite the offensive player to where you can say, hey, this if this guy's our best offensive player, we can be a good offense. Now, having a center who can pick and pop and can shoot threes, that's very valuable, but you still need someone else to create offense. I don't see him really ever being a guy who's going to dominate in the post, draw double teams. When he gets it down there, he wants to shoot a quick turnaround jumper. He's not going to overpower guys. Not doesn't have a ton of moves in the low post. So while I think he was well on his way to becoming a very valuable player and one who can be a part of a good team. If you're looking at him as your best player, especially on offense, you're probably not going to be a very good offense. Yeah. And that kind of, that kind of 
just sums up where where the paces are right now, right? Like they don't they they have they have some intriguing pieces, whether it's guys like him, Thaddeus Young is a nice player. Um, you know, Victor Oladipo is a guy who's shown flashes at times of being an interesting player, but they it, it's hard to look at them and say like here is the foundation of something that's going to be a long-term good unit at either end of the court, which is why why they're in kind of, to me, a pretty murky situation at the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. And you mentioned that subpar return for Paul George. DeMontis Sabonis, maybe they see him as a star level player. I am uh, less sanguine about that. And then Oladipo, if he were two years younger and maybe hadn't settled in and hadn't settled into a contract that probably overpays for what he is, you know, if he were a free agent this year on the market, I think it's very unlikely he would have gotten 20 million, even as an unrestricted guy. So I think he, he's probably overpaid. And now, you know, I think when you texted me the question of like, what is this team's direction? It's the same as the cars that go around that track that they like <laughs> in, uh, in, in Indianapolis, uh, just basically, you know, going around in circles right now, you know, around between 35, maybe 45 wins if these guys develop. But it's very difficult now to see a path to really improving this team because I think they're going to project for years to come as one of the worst offenses in the NBA. Well, and that's why I kind of wonder, like, they're a team that that people, I, I think, are, are I don't want to say bullish about, but... Um, People look at them this year, I think, as a team that can potentially, uh, you know, potentially have an interesting uh, season, maybe uh, interesting, I guess, is strong, but I guess be a team that could potentially, uh, you know, push for a playoff spot. Um, But to me, like they're over under, I think last I saw was around 32 or 33 wins. And like, I could see them being really bad because I think. I think you're right that their offense, it's hard to see how their offense is going to be good. And for a team that, that has been built on defense for a while, um, they, they just look like a, they look like a team that isn't going to be able to really stop anybody either. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, if Turner maybe takes a big step forward, young is an okay option at the four as a guy with some mobility, Corey Joseph, a quality defensive point guard, maybe Oladipo will finally fulfill his defensive potential. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think that when he was drafted number two, he's supposed to be this unbelievable defensive player. And he couldn't even, he, they didn't even give him basically a second guarding James Harden in the playoffs last year. Uh, and he couldn't even guard Lou Williams. I mean, he would just follow him every time. So Oladipo, maybe he'll evolve into being that, but I'm not certain that Nate McMillan, a coach who has rarely, if ever coached a good defense is necessarily the guy to do that. They took a massive step back defensively last season, albeit with some new personnel as well. And then I think you would have to argue with the departure of Paul George. Uh, they have gotten worse defensively, although not having Monte Ellis around will help them a little bit. <laughs> it definitely uh, it definitely won't hurt. I mean, you you mentioned Old Depot last year. You know, I think I think people saw him going to um, going to the Thunder as a as a young piece in that trade. Uh, for Serge Ibaka is a, is a pretty good move for the Thunder. And, you know, obviously they then turned around and gave him that extension before their, their season even really started. And then, you know, he, he seemed to take a step back in, in a lot of areas last year. Do you, do you think that was, uh, you know, was that in part because of kind of the way the Thunder built their team to kind of make sure that Russell Westbrook got everything he needed last year? Or did you, did you see anything in his game that, that made you think that maybe he's either plateaued or, rest a little bit from even the player who was in Orlando, which to your point, wasn't a guy that would necessarily live up to being the second pick in the draft anyway. Yeah, I think you're right that certainly by uh, the advanced stats, he took a little bit of a step back last season. 
PR from went from 16.7 down to 13.6. Didn't really decline as much in usage as you would have expected going from Orlando to OKC. Only one point down in usage did slash his turnover rate. And he shot it a, a little bit better uh, from three-point range up to 36%, but had a ton of wide-open looks, of course, uh, as you mentioned. But it's just it's very difficult for me to see him as a guy who really is going to be even a, a number two or three offensive option on a good team. He doesn't have that wiggly, doesn't have the feel, he, other than just being able to get to the basket and try to dunk on people, which he's very athletic doing that. You know, he doesn't have great moves. He's not a, a guy who can create his own shot. He's not, doesn't have great vision. Not a great shooter pick either. And roll. Right, right. So, I mean, I think he's improved as far as just making a wide open shot, but if they're going to try and put the ball in his hands, I think that now with him being 25 already, you're, you're, there's not much upside left to explore there. So I, I think he can be an average shooting guard. You know, I think that's about what I think is going to happen for him at, at the most. And at $20 million a year, that is uh, that is an overpay. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I think it's hard to, uh, at this point, I think it's hard to argue with that being the case. What do you... Uh, you know, these guys obviously went through a lot of changes this summer. They, you know, they moved the Jeff Teague left and, and uh, they traded Paul, they traded Paul George. I mean, what do you, what do you see their, um, their starting lineup and, and rotation looking like after, you know, a pretty hectic summer with moves all over the place? Yeah. It'd be interesting to see whether Corey Joseph or Darren Carlson gets the start. Joseph can opt out of his uh, around 7 million per year contract after this season. It's, he's probably, even money to do that. We'll was see Carlson's what kind of deal year an option too, or did he just sign a two-year deal for twenty? Uh, two-year deal, second year non-guaranteed, at, oh, at about okay. ten million per season. So the Pacers do have a little bit more control over him. He, he had a stint there earlier where he wasn't particularly effective, but it has been better. And he's an okay option. Maybe they can cobble together, and at least they won't have any horrible minutes at the point, as long as those guys stay healthy. Collison has struggled to do that in his career. So it'll be one of those two guys. I think it'll just be whoever's playing better on a given night who will close games for them among that group. Oladipo probably will be the guy at the two. Maybe they'll try to get Lance Stevenson some minutes. He might move over to the three as well, where he'll be competing with Boyan Bogdanovich, who they signed to a similar deal, non-guaranteed second year, about $10 million a year. And then they got a uh, Glenn Robinson the third as well. So I think you might see, depending on, maybe Stevenson will take some of Oladipo's minutes at times uh, just because they need someone who can ball handle and create something, even if it sucks. <laughs> they right. still have to create something. So maybe Lance will be in there. And then at the four, you know, they've got Thaddeus Young, and that's basically it behind him. Sabonis uh, had a rookie season where he wasn't particularly effective last year. Uh, and he's really going to be dependent upon hitting shots. Maybe you think with Turner spacing the floor at the five, he could get into the post a little bit. And then behind him, you know, they've got TJ Leaf, who's totally unproven. And uh, behind Miles Turner, they also really, Al Jefferson was injured most of the last year, relatively ineffective. He's a, a bit of a dinosaur uh, defensively. And so uh, then they got Ike Anibogu, who no one knows what his status is from a health perspective. So they definitely have big time depth issues at the four and the five and really at the three too. You know, they don't have anyone you look at as a quality starter at probably the league's hardest position to fill. Yeah, no, they, that's what I mean. Like to me, I look at them and I, I think they could be dreadful this season, which, which honestly long-term for them would probably be 
probably be the best thing. I mean, you, you look at them as yeah. a team that could, you know, get, they could get that, um, that elite prospect they need, um, to, you know, to really, uh, kind of jumpstart things. Cause they, um, you know, it just, it just, like you said at the beginning, when you were talking about the direction they're in, I just, I look at this team and I, I just don't see any reasons to really think that, that they're they're They should be a team that should surprise or really do much of anything this season. Yeah, you, you don't necessarily see the upside talent there unless uh, Oladipo and Turner can really blow up this season. And again, Turner, him blowing up is getting a lot better defensively, hitting jump shots more than it is, you know, dominating it as a score and a number one option, I feel. So, yeah, I, I think it, they would have been better served to try to t- keep some cap space open, take on some bad contracts, start getting some draft pick assets rather than and just accept being bad this year rather than those signings of Collison and Boyan, those are taking up 20 million on their cap this year. And yeah, they'll help them be a little more respectable to be sure. And those aren't bad contracts in a vacuum, second year, non-guaranteed, not too long, movable perhaps. I mean, maybe the thought is, hey, we've got these guys, we can move them now and we can get take back some bad salary that way and also give teams someone who can contribute to a potential playoff run. So maybe that's the thinking there. I don't want to totally rule that out, but still I think having those guys, they are going to help the team this season and they feel like, Oh, we can't rebuild. We can't rebuild. Well, Hey, you know what? You've been, you've never been less than 35 wins or whatever since like 1990. So I I think at some point you have to do that. This idea that all this market can't take it. They can't rebuild. Well, you know, get your uh, revenue sharing check from the NBA and, for a couple of years and, and get that next stud player to build around. Right. I, but, I always, I always yeah. think that I always think whether, you know, whether, wherever anybody says that, that teams can't rebuild, whether it's in markets like New York, where there's allegedly too much pressure or in a small market like this, where teams, people are going to forget about the team. My response to that is always that fans always just want to see their team doing something that looks like they have a plan. And if you tell your fans like, Hey, this is what our plan is and you execute a plan, fans are going to be okay with that. Like, it's one thing if a team is doing what the Sixers were doing uh, under Sam Hinkie. Not that I'm, I'm not somebody saying that the Hinkie's plan was bad, but if you're trying to be, you know, intentionally win 10 games, like, then people might stop paying attention for a while. But if you're... Yeah, if you're but but even in, then, the Sixers, look at them now. I mean, look they at that, and look at them now, too. Right. Left, right? I mean, yep. and don't you think that Indiana fans, rather than just seeing another season of stop gaps and guys who aren't really stars and don't even really have star or superstar potential, wouldn't they rather just be bad for one year? And then at least you have some potentially awesome rookies coming in. And because I mean, they always say, right, you're selling hope or you're selling wins. Yes. And, and at this point, the Pacers are selling neither. Right, exactly. And that's what I was going to say. Like uh, in, the, in the short term, maybe if you're literally trying to win 10 games, you might not, people might not care. Right. But even, even a team like the Sixers, if you do, if you do that a couple of years and you hit, get the right kind of players and the right kind of luck, all of a sudden you're looking at a team that's got two or three really interesting young guys. People are excited about them. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that they, you know, the one thing, the one thing you could say about them. And I, I the one thing I did like about those, those two year deals is the way, the way the league has structured these, um, these contracts now in terms of being used in trades. Um, it, it's going to be difficult for uh, teams to use non-guaranteed contracts to, to get, uh, to get money off teams books that's why I thought it was kind of interesting the way the Pacers fra- frame these to contracts because, you know, if they – let's say they – if they package, say, Bogdanovich and, uh, and Collison together, that's $20 million in guaranteed money this year that next year I think is two. 
So then you could yeah. maybe go get, you know, say, I just because I thought of him because he used to play for the Pacers. Let's say they go to the Wizards and say, hey, we'll give you Collison and Boyan for, you know, Yamahimi in a first round pick, just as a, a guy that came to the top of my head. So maybe you sure. can go get, you know, take on some dead money when you're not obviously going anywhere for a couple of years and get another first round pick and, and that, or get a couple, if you move a couple of those guys, maybe get a guy like Myers Leonard and somebody else um, and start to uh, diversify yourself a little bit and, and kind of do something similar to what the Nets did. And that use that, use those contracts and that cap space to go get some assets to try to really um, start to find some guys to bring, to build around Turner. The one guy I think you look at on this team and say, all right, five years from now, that's a guy who you think you can really build around. Well, the other thing that's interesting too, and you mentioned this, but just for readers who need or listeners who need a clarification, it used to be even if a contract was non guaranteed, it counted for its full value in a trade. Now, only the guaranteed portion in a given season counts in a trade. So, if I'm not mistaken, if they wanted to, they could trade, say, Collison next season with only 1.5 million or whatever it is guaranteed. And only take back 1.5 million in salary. Right. That's a great way. Let's say there's a team that really needs a backup point guard option, right? And they just they don't have the money to go and get someone like that on the market who's actually going to help them, and they don't mind paying. You know, if it's a team right. like say the, the Knicks or something. So the Knicks are just say, hey, you know what? We'll we're able to get this guy a 10 million dollar player, and we don't have to send back 10 million in salary that really opens up your options a, a little bit. If you're Indiana to make some of those trades, if the guy can actually still play right to be able to have a guy who's a good player and only cost 1.5 million in a trade that actually could be an advantage. So we'll see, you know, now there's a reason those guys were available for those contracts. Maybe they aren't going to be good players right. by that point, but that'll be very interesting in this new league economy. Yeah. It, and I didn't even thought about that. That would be, that would be pretty interesting. You could, you can look at those guys as, Hey, you can, you could shed a big sour like a guy like Mahimi or somebody and get out of it for cheap. Or like you said, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's a good point that some of these guys that maybe, Hey, you know what, if we have the money to spend, we can get this guy. And like you said, maybe we want to pay him 5 million, uh, but we can't, we can't sign somebody for 5 million given our situation. But we, if we can get them and not really have to give up much, it's, it's worth doing. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And of course, just to be clear, the inflection point there, if they do it at the trade deadline this year, He's ten billion. He's guaranteed this year, so you can take back, you know, what it would be with ten million in salary. Whereas next year, once the league year flips over, and I think maybe even at the draft as well, I got to check on that. But uh, it might be once the season has ended and they're going into the new season. But once you get into the portion where part of the salary is not guaranteed, then they only count for uh, the guaranteed portion. Yeah, no, it'll it'll be interesting to see how this stuff shakes out. So, Nate, thanks for the time, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I know you've got a million things going on with uh, with your stuff, so let people know uh, where they can follow you on uh, the various places you're on the internet and uh, and what you've got going on. Yeah, go to uh, nateduncannba.com. We've got all of it. We do the daily dunked on basketball NBA podcast, which is essentially. Keeps you informed of everything you need to know about the league, cap stuff, transactions, game wrap-ups, pretty much everything there. And then we also do an alternate play-by-play called the Twitter NBA Show. If you're getting tired of the announcers on a game, mute them and uh, listen to us instead. Yeah, no, it's all, it's a it's a fun listen, so be sure to check that out. So, Nate, thanks, thanks again for the time out of your schedule, man. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon.
All right, Matt, thanks for coming on. Um, congrats on, on taking over the beat from, uh, from, from a legend, Charles Gardner, um, uh, you know, an inimitable guy. Um, so uh, I, I'm glad to have you as, uh, as part of the NBA community now. It's good. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate the warm welcome, and I'm excited to uh, hit the ground running as training camp gets started pretty soon. Yeah, and it, we're recording this right before camp starts, but you, you've got one of the more interesting teams in the league. I mean, not, I mean, not only, I mean, obviously, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo is a pretty fascinating guy to be around. Period. But but the Bucks have a lot of interesting stuff uh, to look at, and uh, I think the biggest thing, really, the biggest question mark about this team for me is um, is Jabari Parker. I mean, here's a guy who. You know, is in three years in the league has shown flashes of really intriguing potential, but he's also now had two ACL tears, um, which the the history of guys coming back from that is not great. Um, so you know, at this at this point, you know, where is he in the recovery process? I guess three part question: Where is he in the recovery process? How much do you think he's really expected to contribute by the Bucks this year? And what do you think the chances are that that he and the Bucks come up with some kind of an extension by the deadline before the season starts? Uh, well, when it, when it comes to his rehab, I think from everything I've heard, things are going exactly how they should be. You know, he's been through the process before. He knows uh, what to expect. He knows what's expected of him. And so he's been working with the team um, throughout the spring and summer. He's been you know, at their new facility, uh, working out, lifting weights, running, dribbling, shooting, um, getting all the help and, and medical care necessary to hopefully be back around the, the expected time frame of uh, sometime in February. So around the All-Star break, he'll be back. Uh, we're not sure if it's going to be before the All-Star break, after, um, or could it be earlier or later than that. But usually with ACLs, it's about 12 months, and he, and he tore it in early February of last year. So that's about where we're at. Uh, I just know that everybody in the organization uh, for months has just been ecstatic about the way he looks and the way he's been carrying himself, how strong he's gotten, uh, and, you know, the way he's been handling this process uh, in terms of how much he's expected to, to contribute. Um, it really just depends on uh, when he can come back. If he can come back around that time near the all-star break, you know, obviously there's um, you know, some adjustment uh, when you get back from injury like that. It takes some time to get back to your you know, normal self. Um, but if he can kind of hit that stride you know, late March into April, be ready to, to kind of be himself by playoff time, that's a huge addition for a team that expects to be in the mix in the Eastern Conference. And the last part of your question about the extension—I mean, that's the you know, however many millions of dollars question you want to you want to put on it, right? Because um, he's, you know, he is a, a player who the Bucks really like. I mean, they drafted him number two in 2014, and they really um, liked having him around for his his basketball skill, his character, his his general demeanor, the way he fits in with the chemistry of the team. Uh, all those things are exactly what you would want in a guy and. You know, when Giannis took his, you know, less than max deal uh, for four years, hundred million, that opened the door to the Bucks possibly offering five years, maybe a max, uh, to Jabari when this extension time came around. And now with the second torn ACL and the same left knee, I mean, it's it makes things a lot murkier. And so the the question is, you know, what kind of deal will they offer him? What you know, what might he take? Would he be in line for some kind of you know Steph Curry style? Uh, contract where you know because of his ankles he didn't take you know the the kind of money that you thought he might get um and so they have until the end of october to figure that out and i and i think that they're they the bucks have a keen interest in keeping him around as i said they really like him they really like what he brings to the table and the way he fits on their team but the question is will you <laughs> will they back up the brink truck to do it uh or is that a good idea to even do 
Um, and, and so far, it's still unclear, though. I know that they've had some talks, and uh, I'm sure they'll continue to do so. Yeah, his situation to me is a lot like Joel Embiid. I just don't think it's realistic that an extension gets done. Um, there's too much risk on on the Bucks side that, uh, for me, the only way you can lock him in long term is if he gives you a, a big discount, right? And and from what he has said and the way he, the confidence I know he has in himself, it just doesn't seem likely that he's going to do that. So if he if he unless unless he really wants to take a big chunk back and say, all right, you know, I'll I'll I understand I'm damaged goods, so you guys can have a deal to make sure I get some long-term security. I think short of that, I just think it's more likely that this gets played out. And if he's if he shows he's healthy next year, then maybe the Bucks play a little more um, down the road. But um, I just I just think it's probably going to take that kind of an, an outcome for this to happen. Because like I said, I I think the only way it happens now is if the Bucks get a deal on their terms, because. There, there's really no downside for them to wait, right? They've got it. They've got his free agent rights, so it's um, it, it's just a matter of uh, them figuring out, you know, whether it's worth it to really take a big swing and uh, and and lock him in early. Yeah, right. Right now, there's a ton of risk uh, on the Buck side of things, whereas that risk might not exist uh, later on, or that risk might be amplified, uh, you know, if we if we wait till the end of the season. So. You know, I, I, like I said, I know there's been discussions. I, I, I don't think that those discussions will necessarily stop. It doesn't mean they'll actually lead to anything uh, before the deadline comes. Yeah, no, totally. So um, so w- with that, you know, the Bucks obviously had an interesting first-round series, lost in six games to the to the Raptors. And a, and a big piece of that was Thon Maker, who, you know, had been getting kind of token starts all year by Jason Kidd and hadn't shown a ton. Obviously a very young guy, 10th pick in the draft the year before. But, you know, then he came out. Um, came out in the playoffs and really showed a lot um, and looked like he could be a pretty intriguing long-term fit as a center for this team. Um, so, you know, I know he had a bit of a rough summer league after that, but, you know, after those playoffs and, and kind of the flashes that he showed, um, what do you think the the Bucks are going to be looking for from him as he comes into the second year of his career? You know, I, I think summer league kind of showed the way that the Bucks were trying to kind of test Thon and see what he can do. They were asking him to do more, kind of take the ball off rebounds and push it up the court and kind of do some of the more Giannis-type things um, that are, are weapons that they hope could be in his arsenal. And, and maybe he's not there yet, but he has been absolutely like, living at, at their gym all summer to the point where he's getting teased about it um, by, by people who are walking in there and just wondering why he's still there and if he actually lives there or anything like that. Um, you know, but they're hoping that he can continue the way he ended and continue to bring that high level of energy, you know, potentially uh, still start. I see no reason why they would necessarily need to change that. Greg Monroe's gotten very comfortable uh, being a six man off the bench and, uh, and and performing that role. It's not like they have too many other big guys that they're necessarily going to start ahead of Don. I mean, right now with, with releasing Spencer Hawes, all they have is John Henson uh, in terms of centers on their roster. Um as another guy who could start, and I would assume that that Don would take that spot. Um, so if he can continue to to bring that kind of high level high level of energy, uh, kind of his uh, you know flashes of defense that we saw at times last year, uh, and, and then of course his three point shooting, and of course it helps that over this summer while he's been living in the gym, he's he's definitely put on some muscle and put on some weight, which is something he's going to have to continue doing now, considering his frame is so kind of slight. Um, or at least when he when he came into the NBA, his frame was so slight that you know it's hard to go up against some of the bigger NBA centers with a frame like that. 
Yeah, I mean, their hope for him, I'm sure, is to follow a similar development path as Giannis. Not not necessarily as a, a player. I don't think he's – it's hard to believe he's going to become a top-10 player in the league, even though I think he could be good. But, you know, Giannis went from a guy who was a real stick figure as a rookie to now he's a pretty bulked-up guy, even though he's incredibly long. And I, I think if, if Thon, especially playing center, can make a similar progression, they'll be pretty happy. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they're hoping for. And, uh, you know, he's got he's had his time where he, after summer league, came straight back to Milwaukee after a couple games – and just had a kind of a, you know, almost a week-long workout session with Giannis where they just kind of went hard. And he kind of saw what it what it's like to be Giannis and how to work in the summer uh, like him, which could only help. No question. No question about it at all. Um, you know, you, I know, are, are new on the beat, but so is, uh, in a sense, the general manager of the Bucks, even though he's already there. John Horst was kind of a, a stunner appointment to general manager. Um you know, after, you know, Justin Zanuck had been brought in, it seemed like he was kind of a GM in waiting. John Hammond leaves to go to the Magic. Uh, Zanuck, it seems like, is going to get the job. Then all of a sudden, uh, he doesn't. And John Horst, who had been working in the front office, gets kind of bumped up to GM out of nowhere. And uh, Zanuck leaves. Um, it's very, it's very interesting uh, sequence of events. And, uh, you know, with that and with the way the summer played out, where do you see, um, where do you see Horst at? And, and where do you see the franchise at after, obviously, a, a pretty chaotic few months, uh, you know, in terms of their management situation. Yeah, well, I think that that was a pretty crazy, you know, couple of weeks in the, in the way that things went. Uh, definitely was not how many people expected it to go. But since then, I think the Bucks have kind of turned inward and really focused on what they want to be and where they want to go and, and how they want to proceed. And and all the reports I'm hearing, you know, out of out of their organization have been very positive about the way uh, John Horse has kind of approached his new role. Uh, a lot of people are saying that he doesn't seem like he's as young as he is or as new to the job as, that, as he is. He, he's very open to uh, working and pulling everyone in and working as a team so that they can kind of make decisions. At the end of the day, you know, he knows it's his decision and it will be his decision on, on you know, the calls the GM needs to make, but he doesn't really have an issue with a lot of people being in the room and being involved and um, and working together on this common goal. And so they've they've taken that approach over the course of the summer and and looking at different free agents and, and players for their new G League team and uh, obviously for the draft. And, and they've kind of restructured or you know moved around the front office a little bit as, as teams do. You know, bring in you know new scouts. They brought a new assistant general manager. Uh, right, Milton Newton, Milton Newton who's got a ton of a ton of experience, which which makes a lot of sense. Exactly, and, and the funny thing is, I, I just talked to Milton Newton today, and he he said that he didn't really even know John Horst uh, before. Well, that goes for I think the, a lot of the league. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was that's true. There's definitely a lot of who is that guy when he got hired to be GM, which right. is definitely not a normal. Uh, circumstance when a guy is hired to run one of these teams you know and, and then out of nowhere you know horse calls Milt newton a couple of days after he got the job and said hey i want to get to know you i want to talk to you and one thing led to another and you know Milt is the experienced nba front office person who got hired as the assistant general manager to kind of help john through you know this process so they're they're building towards um you know creating a lot of cohesion in the front office and and creating a you know building on the, the common goal that was already there and since you know John Horst may not have been known, but he's been with the Bucks for nine years, so he knows the organization, he knows the people, he knows the plan, and so that's that's kind of what they're going off of as they head into the season. 
Yeah, and that 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 whole dynamic is going to be really interesting, and it and it kind of plays off what my next thing was, which is uh, where where is Jason Kidd at with the franchise? I mean, here's a guy, you know, obviously came came to came to Milwaukee under pretty interesting circumstances himself a couple of years ago from Brooklyn, um, and you know, he, he's a guy that during last season there there was you know definitely behind the scenes at least some there were some rumblings that his hot his seat was pretty hot and he could be in job jeopardy at times, and then. You know the Bucks really went on a big run towards the end of the season. They get in the playoffs. They have a good first round series. Um, you know, and and that kind of stabilized a little bit. Um, but what do you um what do you see what do you see as, as his situation right now with them, and, and and where is he at? You know, coming into you know what's you know into this season with the Bucks. You know, one of the Bucks owners, Wes Edens, was asked about Kid and his position, and you know whether or not any of the the GM candidates they brought in were you know brought in with the expectation of hey you have to keep kid or you don't have to keep kid or whatnot and and Edens didn't you know he, he answered the question by basically saying everyone they brought in was in full support of kid and, and they liked kid and they and they thought that he was great and I think the ownership is kind of on his side with that too so that that's how he chose to answer it which leads me to believe you know that and other things that kid's situation is fine they got to the playoffs they did what they needed to do they have a young strong up and coming team that they are bringing back basically everyone. I, I think it, it's 12 guaranteed contracts are already back from last year. And then we have one non-guaranteed and Gary Payton, the second uh, that's coming back. So, you know, you, you look at that, you have 13 guys potentially who played on last year's team that could be back this year. So, you know, you, you have this team, this unit that's stuck together. The coaching staff has been solid. You know, the GM might've changed, but it's someone who's been in the franchise. So there's been a lot of, you know, continuity that the Bucks been working with and, you know, with the Bucks, if, if they perform the way that they're expected to to perform, you know, then there, there's no reason that that kid would be facing any any issues. If they come out of the gate and you know, over the course of and even then, not even just out of the gate, but over the course of time, if this season's not a playoff season, when there's really no reason they should miss the playoffs in the East, then that's another issue. But for right now, you know, they're on the trajectory of where they want to be and where they want to be going. And, and Jason Kidd's been part of that the whole time. And I don't see a reason why that would change. Yeah, no, I think certainly this season, if it, if it goes the way people expect, he'll be fine. And, and like you said, if it doesn't, if things go kind of sideways, then, then that could definitely change. But I think the end of last season, you know, and def in the, you know, the removal of Zanuck and, um, you know, bringing in a guy like Horst, who isn't exactly a seasoned guy. I think it all does kind of point to him being in pretty good shape, at least for now. Um, and, and finally, you know, the guy everybody wants to talk about the box is obviously, you know, the Greek freak. And, you know, Giannis had a tremendous year last season, you know, took another massive step forward, you know, as he has basically every year of his career so far. Um, you know, he, he'll, he'll be pretty high up in my top 100. It comes out next month. Um, he's a guy that, you know, I, I think some people think could be an MVP candidate this season, you know, for him to, for him to, to kind of take that next step and become truly one of the top few players in the league. Uh, and and become that kind of player for the box. What what does he need to improve on to to reach that level? Uh, I, I think the general consensus is just improving his jump shot, improving his, you know, adding just more weapons to his arsenal, you know. But even with what he had last year, where he did, you know he didn't have you know a super consistent jump shot or a three point shot, he was still just a terror for teams to deal with, uh, and became you know a top ten player in the NBA, you know, as a as a second team All NBA player and All Star starter. So when you're already in that conversation uh, among the top 10 players in the NBA, I think that almost de facto makes you in the conversation for MVP. I mean, and so, you know, the next step, I guess, would be becoming, you know, a a contender instead of just a candidate. Um, But I I think that if he can continue what he did last year, you know, obviously having a team that wins more 
helps you and, and being a, an integral player in that winning will obviously boost your profile and, and kind of help you on that way. Um, I, I think that continuing what he did and, and adding some more scoring options and um, just kind of showcasing some more uh, basically unbelievable aspects to his game, I mean, it's just going to, I think it's a natural fit to kind of put him closer or in that conversation this year. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about him. I mean, as is everybody, but I, I think you know, in a in a league where you know uh, there could be Warriors fatigue, and you know the Cavs could, uh, you know, I think kind of take a lot of the regular season off. Um, I think he's got a real chance to be in the mix for MVP. And you know, you, you look at the way he's grown over every year in the league, and you know, it, it seems like there's there's no limit to what he can do. And if he does that again this year, you know, I think there's there's no reason to think he couldn't be in that kind of a mix. And if he does, the Bucks could be you know, a pretty interesting team in, a, in an Eastern Conference that I think is pretty wide open. Yeah, and, and, you know, some people look at it in different ways. You know, maybe net more national TV games help or things like that. You know, last year they were a definite league pass team. This year they've got, you know, more games on national television than than they normally have. And so just those eyeballs and, and that viewership, I mean, that, that could be something that helps Giannis too because he, he has had pretty, you know, memorable games on on the big stage you know, both in terms of national TV and in playoffs. And, you know, if he can now kind of get his name out there more, I think that that only helps kind of build his his brand and his candidacy towards being an MVP caliber player. No, no, there's no question about it. And he'll he'll be one of the guys that uh, understandably every uh, everybody wants to uh, everybody wants to see this season. So so, Matt, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Um uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the uh, at the Bucks Cavs game the first week of the season. It should be should be a pretty fun night in Milwaukee. Um, but until then, uh, give the people where they can follow you on Twitter and and let let us know if you got anything interesting coming up here the, the to open the uh, open the start of the training camp here as, as things get rolling. Yeah, well, uh, you can always follow me at uh, Matt underscore Velasquez on Twitter, and you can find my work at jsonline.com/bucks. Uh, the reason I talked to Milt Newton today was because I was kind of doing a story about him and and where he comes from and, and where he's been. And, and part of that involves, you know, growing up in St. Thomas, which has been hit really hard by hurricanes, uh, especially uh, Irma. And, and now Hurricane Maria is obviously affecting that area. So um, have a story coming out pretty soon about, about him and, and his interest in, in providing relief to that area and, and kind of how he got to the Bucks and, and all that stuff. So that should be a pretty interesting story. And definitely, you know, if people are inclined to, to help out, uh, with those relief efforts, uh, I, I definitely wouldn't uh, wouldn't stop them from doing so. It's definitely a worthy cause. Yeah, no, that's great, and that'll be up by the time this runs. Uh, so, so people who listen to this should definitely go give it a click and, and check it out. So, Matt, thanks, uh, thanks again for your time, man, and uh, enjoy your your first full year on the beach. It'll be fun. Cool. Thanks, thanks for having me. All right, thanks again to In Order, Vinny Goodwill, Joe Varden, Rod Beard, Nate Duncan, and Matt Velasquez. Appreciate all of them doing the pod. Be sure to check them all out on social media and follow their work. Nate does a great job covering the whole league. The other four guys all um, are right on top of everything going on with their teams. And if you, you care about any of them, you should definitely follow all of them. As for me, you can follow me on Twitter, at Tim Bontemps. You can follow me on Facebook, at Tim Bontemps NBA. Please go find my work in the pages of the Washington Post or on our website, washingtonpost.com slash sports. Got a ton of preview stuff coming this week. Had a a big story on five players trying to shed labels yesterday. Also had uh, a a big deep dive into the Oklahoma City Thunder. Today, 
I've got previews uh, of all the award winners as well as projecting who's going to make the playoffs in each conference, who's going to win each division, who's going to, how the playoffs are going to break down and who's going to win the championship. You could probably guess who I picked to win the championship, who they're going to play in the finals. Uh, but there's, there's a lot more stuff coming too. Candace Buckner's got a ton of wizard stuff coming. We got more stories coming later in the week. So as we get it, get into the NBA season here, there's a ton to check out on WashingtonPost.com. Please do that. Uh, please go find the podcast wherever you, you find it and give us a five-star rating and review. You can get it on Apple podcasts, on Stitcher, on Google play, on TuneIn, on radio public or iHeartRadio. Uh, any, any of those places you get it, please give us a rating and review really helps us out a lot. So thank you in advance for that. Thanks to Glenn Yoder in the Western States for the theme music for the podcast. Glenn's one of my editors at the post. His band is really good. I've seen him in person. Go check out their work. People love the the music on the pod. So be sure to go support them for that. Thanks again to everyone once more, one more time for listening to all these preview pods. Uh, hopefully going to have at least one more this week, but the NBA season is finally here and I'm ready to get going. So, uh, excited to, uh, Excited to get started, and we'll talk to you all again soon.